Hi everyone, this is Willie Crawford, and I'd like to welcome you to another episode of the Business of Internet Marketing. Um, today's guest, uh, uh, my first guest, is George Stavru. He's the author of the, the Stavru Method, um, a 12-week day-by-day guide to health, wellness, and fat loss for all fitness levels. Uh, George uh, has 25 plus years experience in this business, and he, you know he's a certified uh, expert. Uh, so that's why I invited him onto the show. That and the, I, I noticed that a lot of us online marketers, we spend countless hours at the computer, and we sit and we eat bad foods, and uh, eventually we we notice that we've gained a lot of weight, and we're in really poor health. And um, to me, that's a concern. Uh, you, you, we spend all of our time uh, trying to make money, basically, and then one day we wake up and we need to spend all of our money trying to regain our health, and that's you know not the way to do it. You need to approach it uh, more holistically uh, from a preventative uh, angle, I guess is the best way to describe it. So, uh, George is on the show today, and uh, welcome to the show, George. Thank you very much, Willie. I've been looking forward to this for a while. You know, and you certainly touched on a lot of great points in it because sometimes you know people do use the excuse or explanation that they're too busy to actually not just improve their health, but stay in great shape. So you know, I've got about five, six tips I'd like to share with you and your listeners, if you're okay with that. That sounds excellent. That sounds absolutely beautiful. Why don't you go ahead and, and uh, start. Well, first of all, if you want to tell them a little more about yourself, uh, we, can, we have time for that, too. Oh, perfect. Okay. So a bit of a background on me. Like Willie said, I have been in the health and wellness industry. For the better part of 25 years, I uh, worked in a variety of different settings, commercial gyms, corporate health, exercise equipment store, health food store, selling vitamins and supplements. So it's a little bit of everything. Um, I'm not claiming to be the expert in all the different health areas out there. I'm more of like what you call the hub. So what I do is I bring people together that are experts in their respective industries. And that's part of the package that we're working on right now, and we can certainly cover that a little bit more. So let's let people know that if I've got the answer for you, happy to share it. If not, chances are I know somebody that does have the answer that you're looking for. Thanks for pointing people in the right direction. Okay. And uh, part of what I do is uh, is I'm the reporter. You know, I, I'm not the expert. I interview experts, and that in itself puts me front and center. So it, it's you know that's that's what I do with my radio show. Um, mm -hmm. Why don't you go ahead with the uh, the five tips then? Okay, so I'll say tip number one, and I'm just going to grab my notes over here. Okay. Be so be consistent with your sleep. Uh, something I read a little while ago is every hour of sleep before midnight is the equivalent of two hours after midnight. So it doesn't mean that sleeping from 8 p.m. to midnight is the same as midnight to 8 a.m., but just from the research that is out there, if you can kind of shift your sleep so there's a little bit more time before midnight than there is after, you know, it's going to just result in better overall health. So I find going to bed at a decent time, say around 9 or 10 o'clock p.m., tends to work for me. And it's relative to, you know, say the shifts that people are working, what's going on with their family life, things like that. For the most part, I'm in bed during the week, say 10 o'clock at the latest, and normally I'd say about 5, 6 the next day. Yeah, and uh, I'm 59 now, and for the majority of my adult life, 
I actually got by on four hours of sleep a night. Uh, I, no matter what time I went to sleep, four hours late, I was wide awake. And uh, yeah. so I said, well, why try to force yourself to sleep? Recently, mm -hmm. I've decided that I, I am going to get more sleep. And so now I do, uh, you know, I, I, well, I do things like uh, use aromatherapy, like lavender, fragrances. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very I, beneficial as far as relaxation and late at night. Definitely. Yeah, so then I, I fall asleep, and and I, if I wake up with less than four hours of sleep, then I, you know, I, I force myself to go back to sleep. I also mm -hmm. take power naps during the day. Uh, so, yeah. I had a boss who used to take uh, a a nap during his lunch break. He go. Mm -hmm. I still do. Ah, excellent, excellent. Yeah. So that that well, is. Yeah. Uh, but my mother used to express concern of, over me getting so little sleep. She said, you're going to get an enlarged heart. You're not giving your body time to recover. So um, you know, I think that's excellent advice. I'd say so. And that actually leads into my next point. So it's a bit of a balance between quantity sleep and quality sleep. So to kill maybe with your four hours a night or whatever amount of time that you've been doing it, you could be going into very deep sleep and your body's actually recovering rather than somebody that, on the surface, looks like they're getting a lot more sleep than you. They may be out for seven or eight hours, but it's a restless sleep. They're getting up quite often in the middle of the night. So I think one of the things that does help people out a lot is keeping track of things in the sleep log, like you know, when you went to bed, when you got up, um, were you sleeping throughout the night. I find that my sleep, there's a range of how much time I need. So anything less than six and a half hours, it's not enough. For the most part, like if there's going to be a few days here and there where I can get by on that, but I'm not going to do it for a long period of time. Anything much more than eight hours, it's almost like a groggy or drunk type of feeling. So I find at least with my body, like keeping track of things in the sleep log, six and a half to eight hours regularly, I'm good. Excellent, excellent. And uh, I find basically the same thing. It's just that I work, since I work for myself, I don't work for anyone else. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I work odd hours, so sometimes I'll be on the internet in the middle of the night or working on some project in the middle of the night because I'm focused. Uh, you know, my mind is really clear. I find that um, when I sleep, uh, that I wake up most refreshed if I allowed myself though to go into a deep REM sleep. You know, mm -hmm. and I actually dream and things like that. So I, that's what I look for. Mm -hmm. You know, and I also like what you said earlier about taking power naps. Uh, that actually helped me get through college and university. So I found that, say, a 20 to 30-minute power nap, and I'm good for another two hours that night. But if I skip the nap, I'm just not as productive as I could be. And I know, you know with the people on your list, like you'll have been following you regularly, Willie, they sometimes they think, it's like, okay, well, I'm just going to keep pushing myself, burning the midnight oil, and I don't need the sleep. It's like, well, we need, like, you know, to be cognizant of the fact that we're going through a lot of recuperative things while we are sleeping at night. And it helps us to stay on track and maintain a good level of health. Because there's a concept out there that's called sleep debt. It's almost like credit card debt. We have to pay it back eventually. And if you're always shortchanging yourself, it does add up after a while that the person will need that extra time on the weekend where they just say, you want? I'm going to bed. I'm not going to set the alarm. And whenever I get up is when my body's telling me that I'm done. Yeah, and I find also that I'm more productive uh, if I get more sleep. You know, you, you think you get more done if you slept less, but I mm -hmm. find the opposite. So uh, 
you know, I can get more done in, in an hour if I'm alert than, you exactly. know, if I'm groggy. That's right. Yeah. Excellent. And what you're saying before where you wouldn't get more than, say, four hours sleep a night, you know, we've all experienced this. Sometimes we'll get up and just can't fall back to sleep right away. So I tend to give myself about 15 minutes. And if I'm not falling asleep after the 15-minute mark, I'm going to get up and be somewhat productive. So I'm not going to do anything crazy, sort of like a, a wild workout routine at 3 a.m. in the morning where my blood is pumping like crazy. But I just do like a few things, catching up on emails or the Internet or whatever. So at least I'm making the most out of that time. If I do fall back to sleep within 15, then I just go with that. Because you don't want to just lay there and hope that you're going to pass out again. An hour later, nothing's going on, and then that's an hour that could be used for something else. So it's a matter of knowing your body as well. That's certainly a big part of it. Excellent points. Um, I'd say the next point that I want to cover is, and this is a big thing, it's just planning your meals ahead of time. So the approach I used to take is I'd spend, say, 30 minutes every day to cook something, but we tend to be better off if we can devote an hour or so on our days off of work, whereby we can cook various, say, meat and veggie dishes and just combine them in different ways so you can actually have a different meal every day of the week. If you figure you're in the kitchen anyways, you may as well make the most out of that time and have a few more meals ready so you're not devoting time daily. It just here's my chunk of time, it's done. And once the meals are ready, just put them in the refrigerator or the freezer for future storage. Yeah, I, I like that. Uh, I personally, I've been a fairly good cook since I was a small child, so uh, I, I know how to cook. In fact, I've written several cookbooks now. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, yeah, uh, I, I grow my own fruits and vegetables, and I Beautiful. grow um, without using pesticides or herbicides, so I know the quality of the food that I'm eating. But, mm -hmm. but my wife does most of the cooking, so I don't have to worry about uh, the cooking. She enjoys cooking. She gets up, That's goes out to the vegetable garden, and picks fresh fruits and vegetables and okay. uh, cooks them, you know, so, mm -hmm. and, and she knows what I like, you know, so it, it's fairly easy for me, you know, having someone else do the cooking for me. Yeah, it definitely makes a big difference. You want to enjoy the food. You know, like, you, know, you don't want to force yourself to have something that you just don't like the taste or the texture of. And there's nothing wrong with experimenting with different things. It's just a matter of knowing, you know, your own personality and making the most out of it. Because you'd have to say, like, you're the healthiest meal plan out there. You know, divide by, say, like, you're a nutritionist slash chef that, like, okay, it's very high quality ingredients and it's probably the most nutritious out there. But if you're not enjoying it, the stress alone from eating that day in and day out could probably affect you in a bad way as well. So maybe a person's better off not having the healthiest all the time, but it's something that, say, it's 90% healthy for you, a little bit of cheat here and there but they can still be more consistent with it, too. Yes, and, and, and that I like the concept of cheating uh, because mm -hmm. you don't feel like you're, you know, being a slave to some diet, you know. Exactly, uh, yeah. Yes, you know, right. and, and there's some purists out there where they say, okay, you can never have a cheat meal or a cheat day ever again. Um, there are exceptions to the rule, and everybody is a little bit different, but... If it's a professional athlete that's training for a major event that's taking place a few months from now, or say somebody's dealing with a major illness where they have to stay on top of the program more than, say, the average person, then I'd say that they should be more disciplined with it. But for the general population, it's nice to let loose occasionally. 
So, and what I recommend to people that I have trained is just eat clean, you know, five to six days throughout the week, and have a little bit of a cheat one to two days. So it's five to six steps forward, a couple steps back. And when a person is going to cheat, start off with something healthy to begin with. So, and this accomplishes two things. Like, you know, it offsets the damage from the cheat meal. And another thing is by starting off something healthy, you're somewhat full from the good stuff. So you're not going to have as much room in your stomach with the bad stuff. Excellent. Excellent advice. And, you know, and think of it this way. You know, we're social beings. So say you've got a social event coming up on the weekend. I'm spending time with you. If you're eating clean the whole time and I'm a sloth, and it's not as a judgment thing. It just feels some people are more regimented than others. You may have some resentment towards me because I'm enjoying the so-called forbidden foods. I may have some kind of resentment towards you. Look, well, look at Willie. He's got his act together. But if you plan for it, you say, oh, I normally follow this, but through the day, I'm relaxing a little bit. You, know, you recognize that there's going to be a little bit of damage from it, but you can recover from it, too. And okay. this way, people feel more comfortable in the long run. That, that's excellent advice. Excellent yeah. advice. Um, what, that's like tip number four or whatever? Uh, I'm going to double check here. So that's tip number three. So what number four is make the time for exercise. And I've been guilty of this, Willie, where it would be an all-or-nothing approach. So if I couldn't get, say, an hour in, I wouldn't do anything. So it's like, you sometimes I allow myself to, like, get annoyed. It's like, you know, one day off turns into a week off, turns into a month off. Six months later, I look at myself in the mirror, I recognize the face, but the body is nowhere near what it was prior to that. Wow. So, yeah. So, you figure, even if it's just 10 minutes, and this not be anything too crazy, but a person can do a full body routine, even if it's like a set or two for the larger muscle groups, they can still get benefit from it. And it doesn't have to be like your one 60-minute session at once. A person can spread it out throughout the day. Yeah, I start most of my days off with a, a walk, and mm -hmm. I, I am a bit of a workaholic, but uh, I find that while I'm, when I'm going for a walk, especially in nature, uh, it, it stimulates my thinking, my, and so mm -hmm. I take my, my uh, iPhone along with me, and I make notes to myself, either using a voice recorder or yeah. uh, typing uh, in a notepad, uh, so you know, I... I my, my iPhone right now has like probably a hundred notes I've made mm -hmm. that I plan on like sharing on social media and places like that. So I don't feel guilty taking an hour to go for a yeah. walk. Uh, yeah, and you're more productive. It's almost like an active meditation in a sense. It is. It is. You know, rather than sitting there and you know, just kind of gathering your thoughts and there's nothing wrong with that. Sometimes we just need that peace and quiet for 20 minutes. But I think it's great, though, because I do know that you go out in nature and you really enjoy yourself, so you're accomplishing a lot of things with that one hour. If you try to do everything separately, it might be three or four hours to do what you want to do. And I do exercise several times throughout the day. Uh, I've practiced karate for 40 years, and so uh, mm. I do that. And, and I do like the strength training, too. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not a bodybuilder by any means, but uh, I'm strong. <laughs> Yeah, and find what's right for you. That actually leads to the next couple of points. So as far as the routine, you know, everybody has different needs, but I say for the most part, focus on full body routines with compound movement. So compound movement is two or more muscles and two or more joints in one exercise. So if I have a choice of doing, say, okay, you know, even a pull-up, I don't know how well they can see it on my screen. 
So you can see that there's movement at the elbows and the shoulder. So the up movement is getting quite a bit of the upper body. You know, I'm getting the upper back, I'm getting the bicep, a little bit of shoulder activation, and forearms. I could do isolation where it's just, say, a curl on its own, or even just think a back movement on its own. But if you're doing larger movements, um, you're going to get fast results in a shorter period of time. It's not to say that you should only do the large movements, but if time is very scarce, which it is for a lot of your people, stick with the bigger things. Makes perfect sense. Makes perfect sense. And I, I, I hadn't thought about that uh, so much. I mean, I, I do, uh, even on my walk sometimes, I'll pass by a, a, a place where there's workout equipment, and I'll do mm. uh, you know, pull-ups and things like that just as a part mm -hmm. of my walk. So uh, yeah. I like yeah. And it adds up after a while. Uh, another recommendation, and this will actually be tip number six, I find that I get very good results if I'm alternating my day. So I'm hitting the weights three days a week, and I'm doing cardio three days a week, but I'm going back and forth. So today was my weight training today. Tomorrow's going to be cardio. Tuesday's weight training. Wednesday's going to be cardio again. So by going back and forth, I'm getting some nice variety. So it's mental variety, which is certainly a big part of it, and also a physical break so I don't run the risk of overtraining. Is too much of any one thing without having the right break in between things you can set yourself up for just overuse and potentially like you have some major injuries down the road. Okay, okay, that makes perfect sense. Um, I opened by telling people that you're the uh, creator of the Stabro method. Uh, why don't we um, discuss that and, and tell them you happy. Know, they can get it and everything or check it out. Um, so, first of all, uh, what prompted you to create it though? So, very good question. Um, this is a resource that I put together that I wish I had years ago when I first got in the industry because there's so much misinformation out there, especially for somebody that's a newbie. It's not so much say the chronological age, it's the training age. So you can have a 15-year-old that's a professional gymnast, as an example, that has been getting the right kind of coaching and training for 10 years. They could be more of an expert, or you could have somebody that's a senior citizen that's never done a a properly designed routine in their life. So that 15-year-old would have a higher training age than say the 65-year-old. And what I've done with the package, um, it's more of a holistic approach to optimal health and wellness, and it's more preventative in nature. So I'll give you some background. I'm based in Toronto, Canada. The way that our healthcare system is set up, and I'm not too sure it's like in the US and your neck of the woods, but 95% of the healthcare spending is more on, say, the treatment side of it, and only 5% is prevention. So I'm not yeah. saying we should put more money into it, but the numbers should be flipped a little bit. I'm not saying to do it overnight, because some people are suffering from serious things. Um, one of the contributors to the package, he's a physician in the US, he says, the best cure for anything, you know, whether it's type two diabetes, cancer, high blood pressure, things like that, don't get it in the first place. And apparently 80% of the illnesses and diseases can be minimized or even prevented outright by following a proper program. And I'm not making the claim that a person will never succumb to any kind of illness, but the approach I've taken with the contributors to the package is here's the resource that you need in different areas, so it's less likely that a person will fall ill, and if they do, there's a better chance that they can bounce back from it. 
Yeah, we're about the same in the U.S. Uh, in that we focus on uh, treating uh, the illness more than we do on uh, prevention. Although, with my military background, the emphasis was on prevention. I mean, we were required to, uh, you know, do exercise and uh, uh, mm -hmm. or enlisted troop aid in the dining hall. They focused on nutrition and things like that. So mm -hmm. that was different. That, but that was forced uh, lifestyle. Mm -hmm. uh, like, like, uh, in, in most of the uh, industrialized world, like we, I believe that <laughs> the majority of people are overweight. Uh, mm -hmm. Well, there's a considerable amount. Yeah, I'd say easily three quarters of the population are either overweight or even obese, which is scary because there's more information out there, um, less action on the information, and a lot of times people don't know where to start. So they say, well, here's a perfect program, and I'm going to backtrack a little bit. As solid as the program is that I put together with my colleagues, it's not perfect for everybody all the time. So there's different questionnaires in there, flowcharts, and say, okay, based on how you answer the questions, here's the level that you're at. So there's some experts out there that will have a complete beginner doing a large movement like the squat, which is rather challenging to learn properly as far as the technique side of it. And they've got them using a heavy weight that they can only do for six maybe seven reps, I figure, well, I'm not going to have a, an 80-year-old woman doing something like that right off the bat. You know, I'm going to introduce them to something like where it's minimal resistance, more repetition so they learn the movement properly, and if there's a breakdown in form, I know that it's not the resistance that's causing it, it's the actual need to learn the technique. Yeah, I, I like that, and, and in fact, that uh, prevents injuries, too. I mean, if you, mm -hmm. yeah, uh, so, so, I mean, if you, uh, do do a too strenuous exercise when you're not ready for it, or mm -hmm. too frequently uh, yeah. when you injure yourself, and and now you have to take time off to allow your body to heal itself. And exactly. So, yeah, uh, and, and you figure that you know, the muscles are rather large compared to our tendons and our ligaments. So pulling a muscle is one thing, and a person can recover rather quickly. But if you pull a tendon or a ligament and you have a tear in that area, that could be weeks or even months as far as you'll get them back into the gym again, or even just have a good quality of life. Okay, that makes perfect sense. Now, I actually uh, read the description of your, your course, even your training, although I was first exposed to you about, I guess, five years ago, and mm -hmm. I have the physical version of it. Now, the, the current version that you recently updated, uh, it's mm -hmm. delivered all online, is that correct? That is, and I've actually expanded on this with the initial version. Um, there's more focus, see, on exercise and nutrition, some lifestyle weight management. What I've done with the revised version, Willie, is bringing on other contributors. So the areas of health that I'm looking at as far as preventative is, say, physical health, mental, emotional, spiritual, financial, and, say, relationships with ourselves and others. So as an example, a person could be very healthy in five of those areas, but if they're going through a messy divorce and they've got to pay some major alimony, the finances can offset all the positives in the other areas. So fortunately, I do have experts that share their knowledge and wisdom over the years, and it's basically just one-stop shopping. So it goes back to what I was saying before, I'm more of the hub rather than the expert. Yeah, I, I've noticed that... Uh a lot of people lead very stressful lives because they are they're constantly worried about money. Uh, mm -hmm. 
I'm fortunate enough not to uh, be in that position, but it's because I've worked all my life. I started working as a small child. Uh, exactly. And I create my own products and services that I sell over the internet. So, uh, mm -hmm. and I mentioned I'm 59. My intention is to semi-retire um, next year. And when I say semi-retired, I'm going to turn over a lot of responsibility for running my business to others. Uh, so Very it's nice. outsourcing and delegating uh, mm -hmm. because I want to take time off uh, to take yeah. time to enjoy myself, to enjoy my grandchildren. Uh, exactly. Yeah, and you put a lot into this over the years. You need that downtime. No. Yeah. And, and so stress is a, is a big problem for a lot of people. I mean, a lot of, they don't mm -hmm. think about it so much, but if you're constantly worried about money or, yeah. uh, you know, you, you have relationship problems and, and that's very stressful, uh, mm -hmm. and it does affect your health. So, uh, correct. It, it's, uh, it's critical that people pay attention to things like that. So it, it sounds great that you have, um, so many contributors to, to your package. Um, Thank you. Now, yeah, another thing that we've done as well, and sorry about jumping in my friend, Oh, no. So as, as solid as the package is, there's always more information that can be added to it. So there's also a monthly membership site that's in a private area. And there's always adding more experts and interviews, audio, video, special reports, that type of thing, just to kind of expand on the initial program as it is. Excellent, excellent. Yeah. Now we're, we've got about another two or three minutes, I think. Uh, mm -hmm. So... I, uh, I, I want to make sure we tell people how to uh, get the package or check out your, your training. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's at the .com. Is it, You want to spell that for them? Yes. So Stabroom is spelled S-T-A-V as in Victor, R-O-U. And I know that we're going to be having links, say, to our recordings, so that'll make it easier as well in case people miss it the first time. So yeah. the Stabroom Method. Dot com and the Stabro method is one word. There's no hyphens or dashes or anything like that. And uh, I, I will post a link uh, below the podcast or anywhere that I share the podcast. I will post the link to uh, Perfect. your site so that it's appreciated. Even though you know you you spelled it out, uh, they it, they can just click a link that's uh, better, you know, or mm -hmm. easier for them. You know, exactly. So get lazy. Um, now, this podcast is broadcast over uh, iTunes and Stitcher and a lot of other places. So That's there are great. people around the world who, who are who listen to this, and uh, mm -hmm. so some of them uh, will have to, you know, jot it down while they're in their cars or on the mm -hmm. train, riding to work, and things like that. That's why I wanted to spell it out. So uh, definitely, uh, you know, uh, I, yeah. I, I always like to spell out things because it, even though you hear something, sometimes it's uh, a challenge to know exactly how to spell. I mean, I've known known you for, like I said, five years. Sometimes mm -hmm. I have to go and look at my at my spellings. You know. Yeah, when it happens, sometimes people miss the U at the end of my last name. So, you know, I like your poet. Just spell it out, clickable link, and just makes it a lot simpler for everybody to do what they need to do. Okay, why don't we go ahead and wrap things up? Uh, and hopefully, I'll be able to have you back on my show again sometime soon. Uh, Looking I forward to it. Yeah. Again, I think it's very important that my my listening audience uh, think about it, think about their health, uh, think about uh, prevention and and staying healthy rather than uh, you know waking up one day and you're in terrible shape and now you got to try to 
struggle to get back in shape. And, and we mentioned the doctors earlier. Most mm -hmm. uh, medical professionals that I've uh, been exposed to, they focus more on uh, uh, treating illnesses by masking uh, the, the symptoms. And so even if you have like pain, uh, mm -hmm. give yourself to, to mask the pain, but they don't focus sure. on, on the cause of the pain, you know, so that's... Well, and that's a very good point. So if I could just add one little thing before we do wrap up. Sure. Um, if you look at like, you know, people that do have, say, high blood pressure, a lot of times their physician will put them on prescription med. And this is a general thumb, but textbook normal for blood pressure is 120 over 80. Like you know, there's a little bit of variance between, say, the higher and the lower the two numbers. Yes. So say somebody goes in with very high blood pressure, they're taking their prescription meds, bring them down to what looks like it's a good range. Okay, it's preventing like you know, the chance of a, a cardiac incident. But what's to stop a person from being a fat, lazy SOB? Yeah. You know? So it's like, you know, what would be nice, like, you know, I'm not anti-medication by any means, but if a person does require it, speak to the physician and say, can we reevaluate every three months and what can I do just with more natural methods as far as exercise, nutrition, supplementation, stress reduction, that type of thing. So say you have twins that are out there, everything's the same on the surface as far as their blood pressure, and they're both on the medication. One just follows the doctor's suggestion. The other follows it, but improves their life a lot of ways. So don't you think that 120 over 80 would actually drop if they're doing more of the right things? Yes, yes. Absolutely. And then maybe gradually wean themselves off of it. I'm not saying stop abruptly because the body's expecting certain things and I'm not making that claim. But just say, you know, now you're a better spot, so maybe we can reduce the dosage by a quarter of the amount. And that's a conversation to have with the physician. Then get to the point that maybe minimal medication or none at all. Yeah. Like and, over a period of time. Yeah, we, we uh, do need to wrap up in a few seconds. Mm -hmm. But. Okay. Uh, my physician actually does uh, full blood workups. I mean, they perfect. They draw like five or six vials of blood and look for nice. Everything, you know, that's uh, great. And and it you know it's reassuring to you know I'm very healthy. Uh, mm -hmm. But but you still want to know what's going on in your body. So uh, yeah. And have the doctor explain you know, where the measurements are. Some numbers should be higher. Some should be lower. Have the conversation. Say what's an optimal number to be at for this particular type of result rather than just saying well you're okay well okay doesn't mean anything you know yeah i want to be at a certain point there where i reduce the chance of something happening later excellent excellent yeah. so well uh, why don't we go ahead and wrap up and plan on having you on the show again um sometime Fantastic. soon that'd be great thanks again george thanks and a lot there willie i really enjoyed the time with you and your audience thank you take care you too bye-bye Hi folks, this is Willie, and I'm back with the second half of today's show. Today's uh, second guest is a friend I've known probably uh, well over a decade. He spoke at my uh, 50th anniversary birthday bash, in fact, uh, which is was, was 10 years ago. So uh, let me introduce you to our guest. Uh, for more than 40 years, our guest has straddled two worlds, the profitability and marketing world and the world of transformational social environmental change. He shows businesses how to thrive by fixing hunger, poverty, war, and catastrophic climate change, and shows consumers how to push businesses to do more for the world. 
he even founded a movement that saved the mountain in his hometown, his community. His tenth book, Guerrilla Marketing to Heal the World, which I've read, is his fifth award winner. Shel Horowitz, welcome to the show. Thank you, Willie. It's great to be with you. Thank you. Uh, and we have a you know half an hour or so for uh, our segment here. Um, so why don't we just jump right into it? Um, that's okay with you. Sure. Okay. You talk about solving the world's most important uh, problem. To me, that that sounded huge when I first heard it. But you talk about you know hunger, poverty, war, climate catastrophe, that sort of thing. People have, have tried to uh, solve these problems for thousands of years. What makes you think you will succeed when so many others have failed uh, before? Well, the main reason is that I am coming at it from a different lens. A lot of people have tried to solve these things by guilting and shaming. And my feeling is guilting and shaming don't work all that well. So I'm trying something different. I'm trying to move people forward on the basis of enlightened self-interest. This is how you can do good for the world and make money. And both of those halves are important. That's one. The other thing is that we now have technological resources and tools that we didn't have for most of those thousands of years. <laughs> it's just amazing how much more we know about how things work and why they work and what we can do to make them work better that we didn't know even 10 years ago. Excellent, excellent. And I've noticed the same thing, and I've noticed uh, in recent years a lot of uh, my fellow entrepreneurs actually embracing uh, social marketing, I guess you'd call it, um, They've noticed that customers buy more from them if they know that they, they care about the environment and things like that. The customers actually will pay more for the products. Um, you know, you, I mentioned in your intro, first of all, I, I want to get to this, that uh, you uh, mentioned uh, saving a mountain. <laughs> can you tell us about that? Sure, I can. Uh, and for those people who will be seeing the video, I'll actually show. Uh, you should be able to see right now my backyard and uh, Mount Holyoke behind it. Well, I'm, I live on the Barstow Farm, and that is a state park. And the mountain next to that mountain, uh, which is part of the Mount Holyoke Range, back in November 2000, November 1999, sorry, um, a developer said that he was going to put 40 big McMansions up the side of that next mountain over. And they were going to go from the road all the way up to the ridge line. And the article that announced this interviewed a bunch of people who should know better, and they all were doing variations on, oh, this is terrible, there's nothing we can do. And you know what? It wasn't so much reading about the development that got me mad enough to take action. It was reading about the people who had already given up before the fight began. So I got mad, and I said, well, I'm going to prove these people wrong. So my wife and I launched a movement called Save the Mountain. We had the first meeting about two weeks after that article appeared, and we figured, oh, you know, 20, 30 people will show up. Five will get involved. We'll make the developer's life very difficult uh, for about five years, and he'll eventually go away. Well, 70 people jammed themselves into my dining room. 30 more called and said, please keep us involved. Please keep us informed. We can't come tonight. Uh, we got about 35 in the active core. We formed several committees. We went off to work, and my goodness, we, I, as I said, I thought it would take us about five years. It took us just 13 months to save that money. And we, it was the closest thing to a consensus movement I've ever been involved with. Uh, practically everybody in town thought that we were right and the developer was wrong. Uh, town officials would cooperate with us. We were able to bring typically 400 people to a public hearing. This, mind you, this is a town of 5,000. 
So uh, it was a big deal. It was a big deal. And when the dust settled from that campaign, the state had actually taken title to most of the land, added it to the state park next door. And we had changed the whole climate of the town, how things were done and what people thought was possible. And it was one of the most exciting things I've ever done. And I started thinking, well, gee, you know, this campaign brought everything I knew about marketing into organizing and into working for a better world. What if I flip that around and bring what I know about organizing for a better world into the marketing career? So I, I took kind of a long convoluted route that started with looking at business ethics as a success strategy. I think that was what I was still talking about when I spoke at your conference. Yeah. And uh, then that led to really focusing on marketing for green businesses. And then just in the last few years, I've evolved it to look at how business can tackle hunger, poverty, war, catastrophic climate change, how we can go beyond sustainability. And my website, by the way, is goingbeyondsustainability.com. So how we can, sustainability is staying in one place. It's, it's keeping the status quo. I would prefer to look at how to do better, how to make the world actually better than it is. So this is a big, ambitious project, uh, by far the, the most challenging thing I've ever taken on. But I figure I, I'm well positioned to make this effort, and I should, I should make my, t my attempt and see what happens. The worst that happens is that I don't do it, and the best that happens is I've made a huge impact on the world forever and ever. So I'll run with that. You know, I'm 61 years old, and I would like to have a legacy. I like that. I like that quite a bit. And I've seen the uh, the impact of bad decisions by greedy developers uh, on, uh, like, I, I lived in Oahu for four years and developed, the, the land is pretty pricey and pretty scarce there, besides mm -hmm. on the mountains. And uh, so some developers built houses on the sides of the mountains and there were mudslides. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the houses were destroyed and, and people were killed, actually. So uh, I've seen the, the, the results of that. Uh, now, we mentioned um, earlier that, you know, a lot of companies are making businesses, are making decisions based on, you know, uh, what we're talking about. But what are some of the well-known companies that you uh, know are really making a, a difference in the world through their marketing sources? Well, the obvious place to start with is Ben & Jerry's and its parent company, Unilever. Uh, ben & Jerry's, everybody knows this little uppity startup from Vermont of all places took on the, the big super premium ice cream brands years ago and this company they didn't know anything about making ice cream they didn't know anything about running a business but they had passion they had commitment and they had a desire to use business as a force for social good they really I'd say were the, the first to really popularize that movement it goes back many decades before them I mean, you can look at the founders of like Cadbury chocolate in the 18 somethings wow. but, uh, um, they, they were really the first to bring that idea to a mass market and when they got bought out by Unilever, they did it in such a way that Unilever maintained their operating independence, maintained their social principles. And in fact, this is one case where triple, that trickle up actually worked because many of the good socially responsible pieces that came from Ben & Jerry's are now going into Unilever corporate-wide. And it's a big corporation with a lot of brands. They're actually pursuing something called B Corp certification. They're the largest company by far to go after that. And that um, is basically a legal definition that you can look beyond the single bottom line as a justification for what you do in business. It's a very exciting trend. 
excellent, excellent. So it's actually because it's a corporation, it's actually governments involved in, in incentivizing uh, businesses to an extent to be more socially responsible. Yeah, because the traditional business structure says you can't even count that stuff. You have to focus on making the short-term profit. So this is an alternative to that because that just doesn't work very well. Okay. Now, I deal every day. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. I mean, that, that's one. Okay. So that's kind of a hippie company that everything, okay, they're kind of woo-woo. Now let's look at a really mainstream, really profit-driven company, okay? That <laughs> big bad boy in Bentonville, Arkansas. Ah. Walmart. Walmart. <laughs> Walmart, yes. Walmart has done more to green its supply chain than all my speaking, writing, and consulting is ever going to do. And they did it for very basic bottom line reasons. They figured out that they could make a boatload of money and save a boatload of money. You know, they're, they're not tree huggers. They, they are, right, right. you know, pure capitalism. And, um, uh, but they realized that they, they actually, here's a, a wild and crazy statistic. The last time I checked, they were selling more organic food than Whole Foods. And the really interesting thing is, Willie, they were selling it to people who ain't never going to go to a Whole Foods in their life. They were selling it to, you know, the farmer in Mississippi, the truck driver in Tennessee. Um, they, 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 it, it's, I, I have my issues with, with some of their other policies, but on making things greener, on selling green products to people who wouldn't get them otherwise, they're great. And in greening their own operations, they're great. Yeah, I'm, I'm anti-GMO, so, but I've learned to read barcodes. And so uh, I, I, I've taught my wife to an extent to look for, you know, look at the barcode and, and look for organic in, when she goes to Walmart shopping, for example. Mm -hmm. So that certainly works for me. And, and, and if you shop at an organic food store, uh, you've got to pay a, a more for it. You know, the government sort of make it, makes it more difficult, although we can band together and buy more locally organic stuff and uh, help the farmer to encourage people to grow organic jobs. Yeah. And you yeah. can do what I do. You can be a member of a, a community-supported agriculture farm, a CSA farm. We pay a fee up front at the beginning of the year, and then we go and get our veggies every week for several months. And we don't pay anything for those veggies other than what we already paid. And they're grown within three miles of my house, and they're all organic. Excellent, excellent. I, I grow a lot of my own veggies and fruits. Uh, just for that reason, I, I'm, I'm all organic. I use no chemical pesticides or herbicides, just our natural government mm -hmm. stuff on my yeah, plant. Yeah. We do so, that in our garden too, but it's, it's, I think it's a big shift from the way you grew up as far as I know. Yes, it is. It is. Well, we, so uh, what steps can ordinary brick-and-mortar business people take to start addressing global issues? And how can they turn those initiatives into profit, which is what they're really concerned about? Sure. Okay, well, let's just take an example. Well, I can either do an example or you can throw one at me. Uh, which do you prefer? Uh, do one. Okay. Let's say a pizza shop. Okay, that's something that's got to be local. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So let's say this pizza shop owner is having a hard time finding workers. So the owner of the shop goes to the high school and say, hey, I've got a really good idea. Why don't I start for your kids an organic tomato and onion growing and garlic growing project. Wow. And then I will hire those kids to make pizzas with the stuff that they grew and they can sell it to their classmates who will be very, very happy to have fresh pizza with good ingredients. And, um, you know, a portion of this money that we make from this will go back into a college scholarship fund for the students in the program. Excellent. So look at what you've done here. You've, you've extended basically no money. You've created jobs which will be self-paying because they're selling the pizzas. Um, you've given these kids skills. 
you're setting aside some scholarship. You know, it's, it's like a, like a, a six-way win. Nobody loses. And it's, it's not that hard to do something like that, assuming you can get the school to go along with it. Yes, and I don't see why a school wouldn't. I mean, they, they, a lot of schools are struggling for funding, and it, it's teaching the kids about the real world, so that's, that's awesome. Um, you know, a, a lot of people, they look at these problems that you're, you're tackling, and, and they feel, well, I'm just, you know, one small individual, and that, that's just too, too much me. So why do people, you know, tend to feel overwhelmed or disempowered? Uh, can they get help from you? Oh, sure, absolutely. And also they should look for some examples. Like, for example, okay, who's more ordinary than a seamstress? Right. Well, a seamstress in, in your part of the country named Rosa Parks ah. had a pretty big impact. One person refusing to get off a bus or refusing to move to the back, I should say. You know, yeah. that started a, a mass movement. Now, she was an ordinary seamstress, yes, but she was also an activist. She had trained at the Highlander Center. She was active in her local NAACP chapter, but she was an ordinary person. Right. How about an electrician named Lech Walesa, who became the first president of Poland after throwing the Russians out, leading the right. He worked in the shipyard, you know, with wires and, and transformers and stuff like that. Um, um, I personally am an ordinary person who saved that mountain next to the one I showed you. <laughs> um, so never get the idea that ordinary people can't change the world. Ordinary people are what changes the world. It's a lot easier when you band together with other people, as all of those folks did. But uh, yes, I am happy to give help. I, I do consult, write, and speak on this. People can reach me at goingbeyondsustainability.com or at 413-586-2388. And uh, I also have a gift page. You can go to my page and get a bunch of cool stuff, including okay. um, actually some free consulting time with me if you fill out one of the assessments. And to do that, you'd go to goingbeyondsustainability.com slash freebies, F-R-E-E-B-I-E-S. Okay. Excellent, excellent. Uh, now, um, I've, I've read, uh, you, you actually ought to read by letting me read an advanced copy. I, I think of your book, uh, what was it called? Heal the World. Heal the World, okay. Uh, how does that fit in um, with everything? Well, that's the, the roadmap. That really looks at many of the, the successful companies, companies you've heard of, like the ones we talked about, companies you probably haven't heard of, like the Rocky Mountain Institute, um, that are doing incredible stuff to make the world better and making money doing it. Uh, it, it shows a lot of these examples. It profiles some of the, the leading lights in that movement, people who, for example, and I now have a client who's doing this, are replacing kerosene lamps in developing countries with solar-powered LEDs. Now, you traveled a lot, Willie. You, yeah. I know you've seen these things probably in the Philippines and in Africa and elsewhere where they're yeah. just horrible. They're toxic. They're flammable. People die in the fires from kerosene lamps. You have to buy the kerosene every month, and if you're making, let's say, $25 a month and you're paying two dollars for kerosene that's a big hit so you take that two dollars a month that they're paying for kerosene and you say okay for the next eight months you'll pay that two dollars off to pay the lamp and then it's yours and then all of a sudden that two dollars is income that you didn't have before instead of an expense and then you can use that light to maybe do a little cottage craft industry in the evenings after you've come in from the fields you can use that light so your kids can get better grades in school by studying more and then they get better jobs and it's a ladder out of poverty and meanwhile, there's a person on the ground who's selling and servicing that system that has a job because of these companies. 
So it, it's like, just like the pizza example, you're seeing many, many benefits and basically no downside. Yeah, I, I uh, cruised with a, a, a group uh, two years ago, uh, and, and on that cruise I met the entrepreneurs, a lot of them had, were, were, did social consciously, socially conscious efforts. Uh, one had uh, introduced a, um, a cooking stove that burned uh, fuel made from waste fruit. Uh, mm. I can't remember the country, I think it was Madagascar, but uh, the, the women in that country spent a big part of their day walking, trekking through the forest, collecting branches, and then taking mm -hmm. those home and cooking on those in cramped little spaces. And what that did was that polluted the air in the home so much that they had a very high incidence of uh, lung diseases in their children, but they had no choice. Uh, they also had a lot of uh, rape because the men robbers and people like that knew that the women were always trekking through the forest and so uh -huh. and and so this guy developed that this stove that he actually brought on the cruise and he had to get permission from the fire marshal <laughs> <laughs> I, I think you'll eventually see people moving away from burning biomass entirely but as an interim solution it sure beats what they had before and um you know it's uh, it's amazing how much change you, you know you talked about the rape issue there with women going to collect the, the right and stuff from the forest just by putting in a bathroom in a school you can make enormous changes if you put in a, a, a girl's bathroom in a school that didn't have one before and those girls are not going out to the forest and putting themselves at risk just to take a pee and they're um, they're more likely to go to school they're more likely to stay in school and the benefits of women's education are there's study after study that shows that that is probably the very single best thing you can do to improve the world is to educate girls. In a lot of countries, they're, they're very marginalized in the school systems. Uh, Malala got shot for it, the, the, who she yeah. was 11 at the time in Pakistan. I heard her speak a couple of years ago. She's fantastic. She's a very brave young lady. I mean, she, she wasn't intimidated by getting shot, you know, and, uh, and she's what a hero talking for the United Nations and things like that, too. Yeah, I think she, did she win a Nobel Prize? think so, I'm not sure. Yeah. And so, you know, we talked about before, what can one ordinary person do? This was an 11-year-old girl when she was already active enough to get noticed and shot. <laughs> so Yeah, yeah. She, you know, she went against the cultural wars of her country, too, so, you know. Uh, you know well, she, of the people who were taking over her country. I don't think yeah. they represented the, the mores of, of everybody in Pakistan. Yes, yes. Now, now um, I had, had a number of questions I was ask, going to ask, but I'm watching my, my time, too. Um, uh, we've already talked about how you know, they can get your gift and things like that. Uh, well, one of the things I've noticed is, uh, in my world, which is the world of internet marketing, although I'm moving away from that world right now uh, and, and moving more into making a real difference in people's lives. So I ask, you know, I'm 59, and you mentioned you're 61. Um, I, I say to myself, well, I'm not going to live forever, although my grandmother lived to be 96, so I, I'm hoping that I'll live that long, too. And I had an uncle who lived to be well past 100. Uh, so that's about taking care of yourself, though. And I know you you, you know, work out and regularly and things like that, because you've chatted about that. Um, I've noticed that a lot of people in my world, though, entrepreneurs, uh, once they make uh, money uh, and they feel they have enough, and that's just a perception, then they do become socially conscious, you know. So my friend uh, Yannick Silva, for example, he hangs with Richard Branson and his crowd, and they, 
and my friend uh, Russell Bronson, David Fry, those are all internet marketers who uh, build schools. Fry uh, yeah. built schools in Africa. Uh, I think Bronson's group does stuff in Haiti. Silver's uh, group does stuff in Haiti. Yannick, by the way, has an essay in Guerrilla Marketing to Heal the World. I took a, a chapter of his book, um, the, the Maverick book, with, with his yeah. Okay. He used that, and it talks about like something like 11 different models for socially conscious companies. So Yannick's a cool guy. I went to his 30th birthday conference a long oh, time ago, yeah. and uh, that was 1990 something, I think. Yeah, I, I've gone to several of his underground seminars, and and always made myself invited for free. Yeah. <laughs> Like that. Yeah, I, I don't think I paid for that one either. Although I wasn't speaking there, but um, uh, it, it was it was an interesting event. He attracts interesting people. He comes at it from somewhat of a different place than I do, but I think he's doing great work. Uh, yeah, he's one of four guest essays. So now I have two from the internet marketing world. The other is Ken MacArthur, who is okay. a big big teddy bear who writes books about impact, and um, and then two from outside the. In internet marketing world. One is Cynthia Kersey, who also builds schools in Africa. She's the one who wrote Unstoppable and Unstoppable Women. Wow. And then Frances Moore LePay, who wrote Diet for a Small Planet and a whole lot of other books about food and democracy, has a guest essay in there. So those are some power hitters. I was very glad to attract them. Excellent, excellent. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I hang out, I appear to hang out on social media more than I do because <laughs> I pre-schedule some posts and then I go in and I read the discussions and respond to them. Uh, and I notice that people argue about some issues that we don't seem to be able to change their minds. They've already made up their minds, you know, all those issues, you know, like things like global warming and, and it, despite the evidence that you show them, you know, they, they go and they dig up something that, you know, they could, some argument, you know, that doesn't make sense. They, they don't, I, I am, am proud of my following though because uh, many of them are willing to argue without name-calling, without resorting to name-calling. You know, those are people I boot out of my audience. Right. You had a very nice discussion recently, actually, about climate change on your feed that I participated in. Yes. Yeah, and actually that sparked me to write a blog post. Uh, I believe I posted the link on, on your feed that um, you, what if the climate deniers are right? And what if all we get is more spending power, cleaner air, better health uh, outcomes, and all the rest of the good things that happen if we address climate change? And then what if they are wrong and we are right, and uh, really the world would be a mess? So I, I think either way we win by addressing these issues and acting like they matter, because they might matter. I think they do matter. Yes. If they don't matter, we get far better outcomes for not that big an expenditure relative to the benefit. Yeah, and, and you know... It my thoughts as I'm a grandfather and will someday within the next decade probably be a great grandfather, uh, you know, it's what kind of a world am I leaving for future mm -hmm. generations? You know, you look at things like global global warming and, uh, you know, the ice is not going to melt fast enough to make a difference in my lifetime, you know, uh, for the most part. Uh, I mean, New York's not going to be on the water. Florida's not going to be on the water, you know, in the next 50 years probably. But future generation is going to make a huge difference in their world. So uh, mm -hmm. it, it's worth, you know, uh, caring about and investigating, you know, during, during your investigation. Yeah, and I am still optimistic. It's getting harder. We're losing our window, but it hasn't slammed shut yet. Of course, right now we have no cooperation at all from the federal government, and this is really a tragedy. But right. 
I, I do feel, and that's one of the reasons that I have felt this urgency to really talk about the business world, because government isn't going to do it for us, at least until 2021 and maybe later than that. So we've got to do it ourselves, and this is the, the biggest thing we can leverage is the power of the business community. Yes, absolutely. So we, we are um, running out of time. I, I did want to give you an opportunity uh, once again to, well, I won't give you an opportunity to share anything that you, you know, in a, in a minute or two, within the next minute or two, anything that you just <laughs> want to share with, with our listeners. Well, the biggest thing I want to share is that, yes, you make a difference. Your actions matter. Your actions matter more when you work with other people. But even the solitary single things of, like, turning off lights when you're not using them, switching to more energy efficient. You know, Europe, northern Western Europe uses about half as much energy per person as we do. Wow. And they do pretty well there. So that's an immediate target that we could achieve, like, in a couple of years. We could get to European levels of energy. I think we could then cut that in half again. So by cutting our energy 75%, we'll be cutting our carbon. And, you know, my hope and a belief is that we would not be too late to reverse the, the horrible things that are going to happen if we don't. So I, I, do, I do think that all of us matter and that we need to all take action. And, again, I'm happy to talk to anybody about this. Uh, my, the website is goingbeyondsustainability.com. My personal direct email is shell, S-H-E-L at greenandprofitable.com, and the end is spelled out. And my phone number again, 413-586-2388. And I, I'm bringing more than 40 years experience both in the environmental world and in the marketing world to these conversations. So I think I have a pretty unique perspective. I'm Absolutely. also an eternal optimist. <laughs> I've noticed that. I've noticed that. I mean, uh, who else would set such a such huge goals? You know, I'm like, wow. And and uh, even in the areas like uh, ethics, I remember years ago you actually asked me to sign a, uh, a pledge of ethics or whatever you called it. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, yeah. My goal was to change the the business world that way, and I think I had some effect. I never came close to the goal of the number of signatures I wanted, but I I do think that the world of business changed for the better in part because of the work I did, and in part because that work dovetailed with other things that were happening. Okay. And, and um, again, we're, we're out of time. And uh, so I want to thank you for being on the show. And uh, maybe we can get you to come back again uh, on a slightly different topic if you want. Uh, but uh, I'm sure our listeners will gain so much from this that they'll be uh, looking forward to hearing from you again. Uh, sure. It's been a pleasure, and I'd happily do it again. Usually I try to wait six months between repeats. Sure. I understand that. And I... Uh, Actually, uh, I encourage other uh, podcasters, uh, journalists, or whatever to reach out to you, too. Uh, you know, so I, I know that some of them tune into my show. And uh, you, you obviously make an excellent guest. You've got an exciting, <laughs> relevant topic. Now, marketer that I am, I'm going to say, Willie, would you please put that in writing for me? I'll put that in writing <laughs> Absolutely. And so, again, again, I want to thank you for being on the show. And we've got to call it a wrap now. Take care. All righty. Bye now. Bye.